0: Chapter Twenty Four of Sir Nigel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Twenty Four. How Nigel Was Called to His Master. My sweet lady wrote Nigel, in a script which it would take the eyes of love to read, there hath been a most noble meeting in the fourth Sinait of Lent, betwixt some of our own people, and sundry most worthy persons of this country, which ended, by the grace of Our Lady, in so fine a joust, that no man living can call to mind so fair an occasion. Much honour was gained by the seigneur Beaumanoir and also by an Almain named Croquart, with whom I hope to have some speech when I am hale again, for he is a most excellent person and very ready to advance himself or to relieve another from a vow for myself i had hoped with god's help to venture that third small deed which might set me free to haste to your sweet side but things have gone awry with me and i early met with such a scathe and was of so small comfort to my friends that my heart is heavy within me and in sooth i feel that i have lost honor rather than gained it here i have lain since the feast of the virgin And here I am like to still be, for I can move no limb, save only my hand. But grieve not, sweet lady, for St. Catherine hath been our friend, since in so short a time I had two such ventures as the red ferret, and the intaking of the reaver's fortalice. It needs but one more deed, and sickly, when I am hale once more, it will not be long ere I seek it out. Till then, if my eyes may not rest upon you, my heart at least is ever at thy feet." So he wrote from his sick-room in the castle of Plumel, late in the summer. But yet another summer had come before his crushed head had mended, and his wasted limbs had gained their strength once more. With despair he heard of the breaking of the truce, and of the fight at Mulrond, in which Sir Robert Knowles and Sir Walter Bentley crushed the rising power of Brittany, a fight in which many of the thirty champions of Josselin met their end. Then, when with renewed strength and high hopes in his heart, He went forth to search for the famous Krogat, who proclaimed himself ever ready, night or day, to meet any man with any weapon. It was only to find that in trying the paces of his new horse, the German had been cast into a ditch, and had broken his neck. In the same ditch perished Nigel's last chance of soon accomplishing that deed which would free him from his vow. There was truce once more over all Christendom, and mankind was sated with war. So that only in far off Prussia, where the Teutonic Knights waged ceaseless battle with the Lithuanian heathen, could he hope to find his heart's desire. But money and high knightly fame were needed ere a man could go upon the Northern Crusade, and ten years were yet to pass ere Nigel should look from the battlements of Marienburg on the waters of the Frischer Haff, or should endure the torture of the hot plate when bound to the holy Woden Stone of Memel. Meanwhile he chafed his burning soul out through the long seasons of garrison life in Brittany, broken only by one visit to the chateau of the father of Raoul, when he carried to the lord of Grosbois the news of how his son had fallen like a gallant gentleman under the gateway of La Broiniere. And then, then at last, when all hope was well nigh dead in his heart, there came one glorious July morning, which brought a horseman bearing a letter to the castle of Vannes, of which Nigel was now seneschal. It contained but few words, short and clear as the call of a war-trumpet. It was Chandos who wrote. He needed his squire at his side, for his pennon was in the breeze once more. He was at Bordeaux. The prince was starting at once for Bergerac, whence he would make a great raid into France. It would not end without a battle. They had sent word of their coming, and the good French king had promised to be at great pains to receive them. Let Nigel hasten at once if the army had left then let him follow after with all speed chandos had three other squires but would very gladly see his fourth once again for he had heard much of him since he parted and nothing which he might not have expected to hear of his father's son such was the letter which made the summer sun shine brighter and the blue sky seem of a still fairer blue upon that happy morning in van it is a weary way from van to bordeaux coastwise ships are hard to find and winds blow north when all brave hearts would fain be speeding south. A full month had passed from the day when Nigel received his letter before he stood upon the quayside of the Garonne, amid the stacked barrels of Gascon wine, and helped to lead pommers down the gangplanks. Not Aylward himself had a worse opinion of the sea than the great yellow horse, and he whinnied with joy as he thrust his muzzle into his master's outstretched hand, and stamped his ringing hoofs upon the good firm cobblestones. Beside him slapping his tawny shoulder in encouragement, was the lean spare form of Black Simon, who had remained ever under Nigel's pennon. But Aylward, where was he? Alas, two years before, he and the whole of Knoll's company of archers had been drafted away on the King's service to Guienne, and, since he could not write, the squire knew not whether he was alive or dead. Simon, indeed, had thrice heard of him from wandering archers each time that he was alive and well, and newly married, but as the wife in one case was a fair maid, and in another a dark, while in the third she was a French widow, it was hard to know the truth. Already the army had been gone a month, but news of it came daily to the town, and such news as all men could read, for through the landward gates there rolled one constant stream of wagons, pouring down the Libourne road, and bearing the booty of southern France. The town was full of foot-soldiers, for none but mounted men had been taken by the prince. With sad faces and longing eyes they watched the passing of the train of plunder-laden carts, piled high with rich furniture, silks, velvets, tapestries, carvings, and precious metals, which had been the pride of many a lordly home in fair Auvergne or the wealthy Bourbonnais. Let no man think that in these wars England alone was face to face with France alone, There is glory and despair without trifling with the truth. Two provinces in France, both rich and warlike, had become English through a royal marriage, and these, Guienne and Gascony, furnished many of the most valiant soldiers under the island flag. So poor a country as England could not afford to keep a great force overseas, and so must needs have lost the war with France through want of power to uphold the struggle. The feudal system enabled an army to be drawn rapidly together with small expense, but at the end of a few weeks it dispersed again as swiftly, and only by a well-filled money-chest could it be held together. There was no such chest in England, and the King was forever at his wit's end how to keep his men in the field. But Guienne and Gascony were full of knights and squires who were always ready to assemble from their isolated castles for a raid into France. And these, with the addition of those English cavaliers who fought for honour, and a few thousand of the formidable archers, hired for fourpence a day, made an army with which a short campaign could be carried on. Such were the materials of the Prince's force, some eight thousand strong, who were now riding in a great circle through southern France, leaving a broad wail of blackened and ruined country behind them. But France, even with her southwestern corner in English hands, was still a very warlike power far richer and more populous than her rival. Single provinces were so great that they were stronger than many a kingdom. Normandy in the north, Burgundy in the east, Brittany in the west, and Languedoc in the south, were each capable of fitting out a great army of their own. Therefore the brave and spirited John, watching from Paris this insolent raid into his dominions, sent messengers in hot haste to all these great feudatories, as well as to Lorraine, Picardy, Auvergne, Hinault, Vermandois, Champagne, and to the German mercenaries over his eastern border, bidding all of them to ride hard, with bloody spur, day and night, until they should gather to a head at Chartres. There a great army had assembled early in September, whilst the Prince, all unconscious of its presence, sacked towns and besieged castles from Bourges to Issoudun, passing Romorautin, and so onward to Vierzon and to Tours. From week to week there were merry skirmishes at barriers, brisk assaults of fortresses in which much honour was won, nightly meetings with detached parties of Frenchmen, and occasional spear-runnings, where noble champions deigned to venture their persons. Houses, too, were to be plundered, while wine and women were in plenty. Never had either knights or archers had so pleasant and profitable an excursion, so that it was with high heart and much hope of pleasant days at Bordeaux with their pockets full of money that the army turned south from the loire and began to retrace its steps to the seaboard city. But now its pleasant and martial promenade changed suddenly to very serious work of war. As the Prince moved south, he found that all supplies had been cleared away from in front of him, and that there was neither fodder for the horses nor food for the men. Two hundred wagons, laden with spoil, rolled at the head of the army. But the starving soldiers would soon have gladly changed it all for as many loads of bread and of meat the light troops of the french had preceded them and burned or destroyed everything that could be of use now also for the first time the prince and his men became aware that a great army was moving upon the eastern side of them streaming southward in the hope of cutting off their retreat to the sea the sky glowed with their fires at night and the autumn sun twinkled and gleamed from one end of the horizon to the other upon the steel caps and flashing weapons of a mighty host anxious to secure his plunder and conscious that the levies of france were far superior in number to his own force. The prince redoubled his attempt to escape. But his horses were exhausted, and his starving men were hardly to be kept in order. A few more days would unfit them for battle. Therefore, when he found near the village of Maupertuis a position in which a small force might have a chance to hold its own, he gave up the attempt to outmarch his pursuers. And he turned at bay like a hunted boar, all tusks and eyes of flame. Whilst these high events had been in progress, Nigel, with Black Simon and four other men-at-arms from Bordeaux, was hastening northward to join the army. As far as Bergerac, they were in a friendly land, but thence onward they rode over a blackened landscape, with many a roofless house, its two bare gable ends sticking upward, a knoll's mitre, as it was afterward called, when Sir Robert worked his stern will upon the country. For three days they rode northward, seeing many small parties of French in all directions, but too eager to reach the army to ease their march in search of adventures. Then, at last, after passing Lusignan, they began to come in touch with the English foragers, mounted bowmen for the most part, who were endeavoring to collect supplies either for the army or for themselves. From them Nigel learned that the prince, with Chandos ever at his side, was hastening south and might be met within a short day's march. As he still advanced, these English stragglers became more and more numerous, until at last he overtook a considerable column of archers, moving in the same direction as his own party. These were men whose horses had failed them, and who had therefore been left behind on the advance, but were now hastening to be in time for the impending battle. A crowd of peasant girls accompanied them upon their march, and a whole train of laden mules were led beside them. Nigel and his little troop of men at arms were riding past the archers when Black Simon, with a sudden exclamation, touched his leader upon the arm. "See yonder, fair sir," he cried with gleaming eyes. "There, where the wastrel walks with a great fardel upon his back. Who is he who marches behind him?" Nigel looked and was aware of a stunted peasant, who bore upon his rounded back an enormous bundle, very much larger than himself. Behind him walked a burly, broad-shouldered archer whose stained jerkin and, and battered headpiece gave token of long and hard service. His bow was slung over his shoulder, and his arms were round the waists of two buxom Frenchwomen, who tripped along beside him with much laughter and many saucy answers flung back over their shoulders to a score of admirers behind them. Aylward! cried Nigel, spurring forward. The archer turned his bronzed face, stared for an instant with wild eyes, and then, dropping his two ladies, who were instantly carried off by his comrades, he rushed to seize the hand which his young master held down to him. "'Now, boy, my hilt, Squire Nigel, this is the fairest sight of my lifetime,' he cried. "'And you, old leatherface, Nay, Simon, I would put my arms round your dried herring of a body if I could but reach you. Here is Pommer's, too, and I read in his eye that he knows me well, and is as ready to put his teeth into me as when he stood in my father's stall.' It was like a whiff of the heather-perfumed breezes of Hankley to see his homely face once more nigel laughed with sheer joy as he looked at him it was an ill day when the king's service called you from my side said he and by st paul i am right glad to set eyes upon you once more i see well that you are in no wise altered but the same aylward that i have ever known but who is this varlet with the great bundle who waits upon your movements it is no less than a feather-bed fair sir which he bears upon his back for i would fain bring it to tilford and yet it is over-large for me when I take my place with my fellows in the ranks. But, indeed, this war has been a most excellent one, and I have already sent half a wagon-load of my gear back to Bordeaux to await my homecoming. Yet I have my fears when I think of all the rascal foot-soldiers who are waiting there. For some folk have no grace or honesty in their souls, and cannot keep their hands from that which belongs to another. But if I may throw my leg over yonder spare horse, I will come on with you, fair sir, for, indeed, it would be a joy to my heart to know that I was riding under your banner once again. So Aylward, having given instructions to the bearer of his featherbed, rode away in spite of shrill protests from his French companions, who speedily consoled themselves with those of his comrades who seemed to have most to give. Nigel's party was soon clear of the column of archers, and riding hard in the direction of the Prince's army. They passed by a narrow and winding track through the great wood of Nuit, and found before them a marshy valley down which ran a sluggish stream. Along its farther bank hundreds of horses were being watered, and beyond was a dense block of wagons. Through these the comrades passed, and then topped a small mound from which the whole strange scene lay spread before them. Down the valley the slow stream meandered with marshy meadows on either side. A mile or two lower a huge drove of horses were to be seen assembled upon the bank. They were the steeds of the French cavalry, and the blue haze of a hundred fires showed where King John's men were camping. In front of the mound upon which they stood the English line was drawn, but there were few fires, for indeed, save their horses, there was little for them to cook. Their right rested upon the river, and their array stretched across a mile of ground until the left was in touch with a tangled forest which guarded it from flank attack. In front was a long, thick hedge and much broken ground, with a single deeply rutted country road cutting through it in the middle. Under the hedge, and along the whole front of the position, lay swarms of archers upon the grass, the greater number slumbering peacefully with sprawling limbs in the warm rays of the September sun. Behind were the quarters of the various knights, and from end to end flew the banners and pennons marked with the devices of the chivalry of England and Guienne with a glow in his heart nigel saw those badges of famous captains and leaders and knew that now at last he also might show his coat-armour in such noble company there was the flag of jean grély the Captain de Buch, five silver shells on a black cross which marked the presence of the most famous soldier of gascony while beside it waved the red lion of the noble knight of heno sir eustace d'ambreticourt those two coats nigel knew as did every warrior in europe but a dense grove of pen and lances surrounded them, bearing charges which were strange to him, from which he understood that these belonged to the Guienne division of the army. Farther down the line, the famous English enzymes floated on the wind, the scarlet and gold of Warwick, the silver star of Oxford, the golden cross of Suffolk, the blue and gold of Willoughby, and the gold-fretted scarlet of Audley. In the very centre of them all was one which caused all others to pass from his mind for close to the royal banner of england crossed with the label of the prince there waved the war-torn flag with the red wedge upon the golden field which marked the quarters of the noble chandos at the sight nigel set spurs to his horse and a few minutes later had reached the spot chandos gaunt from hunger and want of sleep but with the old fire lurking in his eye was standing by the prince's tent gazing down at what could be seen of the french array and heavy with thought nigel sprang from his horse and was within touch of his master when the silken hanging of the royal tent was torn violently aside, and Edward rushed out. He was without his armor, and clad in a sober suit of black, but the high dignity of his bearing, and the imperious anger which flushed his face, proclaimed the leader and the prince. At his heels was a little white-haired ecclesiastic, in a flowing gown of scarlet sandal, expostulating and arguing in a torrent of words. "'Not another word, my lord Cardinal.' cried the angry prince, I have listened to you overlong, and by God's dignity that which you say is neither good nor fair in my ears. Hark you, John, I would have your counsel. What think you is the message which my lord Cardinal of Perigord has carried from the King of France? He says that, of his clemency, he will let my army pass back to Bordeaux, if we will restore to him all that we have taken, remit all ransoms, and surrender my own person with that of a hundred nobles of England and Guienne to be held as prisoners. What think you, John? Chandos smiled. "'Things are not done in that fashion,' said he. "'But, my lord Chandos,' cried the cardinal, "'I have made it clear to the prince that, indeed, "'it is a scandal to all Christendom, "'and a cause of mocking to the heathen, "'that two great sons of the church "'should turn their swords thus upon each other.' "'Then bid the king of France to keep clear of us,' said the prince. "'Fair son, you are aware that you were in the heart of his country, "'and that it standeth not aright that he should suffer you "'to go forth as you came.' you have but a small army three thousand bowmen and five thousand men-at-arms at at the most who seem in evil case for want of food and rest the king has thirty thousand men at his back of which twenty thousand are expert men-at-arms it is fitting therefore that you make such terms as you may lest worse befall give my greetings to the king of france and tell him that england will never pay ransom for me but it seems to me my lord cardinal that you have our numbers and condition very readily upon your tongue And I would fain know how the eye of a churchman can read a line of battle so easily i have seen that these knights of your household have walked freely to and fro within our camp and i much fear that when i welcomed you as envoys i have in truth given my protection to spies how say you my lord cardinal fair prince i know not how you can find it in your heart or conscience to say such evil words there is this red-bearded nephew of thine robert de duras see where he stands yonder counting and prying hark hither young sir i have been saying to your uncle the cardinal that it is in my mind that you and your comrades have carried news of our dispositions to the french king how say you the knight turned pale and sank his eyes Uh, my lord he murmured it may be that i have answered some questions and how will such answers accord with your honour seeing that we have trusted you since you came in the train of the cardinal Uh, my lord it is true that i am in the train of the cardinal and yet i am liegeman of king john and a knight of france so I pray you to assuage your wrath against me. The prince ground his teeth, and his piercing eyes blazed upon the youth. By my father's soul, I can scarce forbear to strike you to the earth. But this I promise you, that if you show that sign of the red griffin in the field, and if you be taken alive in to-morrow's battle, your head shall most assuredly be shorn from your shoulders. Fair son, indeed you speak wildly, cried the cardinal. I pledge you my word that neither my nephew Robert, nor any of my train, will take part in the battle. And now I leave you, sire, and may God aswell your soul, for indeed in all this world no men stand in greater peril than you and those who are around you, and I redo you that you spend the night in such ghostly exercises as may best prepare you for that which may befall. So saying, the cardinal bowed, and with his household walking behind him, set off for the spot where they had left their horses, whence they rode to the neighbouring abbey the angry prince turned upon his heel and entered his tent once more whilst chandos glancing round held out a warm welcoming hand to nigel i have heard much of your noble deeds said he already your name rises as a squire errant i stood no higher nor so high at your age nigel flushed with pride and pleasure indeed my dear lord it is very little that i have done but now that i am back at your side i hope that in truth i shall learn to bear myself in worthy fashion For where else should I win honour if it not be under your banner? Truly, Nigel, you have come at a very good time for advancement. I cannot see how we can leave this spot without a great battle, which will live in men's minds for ever. In all our fights in France I cannot call to mind any in which they have been so strong, or we so weak as now, so that there will be the more honour to be gained. I would that we had two thousand more archers, but I doubt not that we shall give them much trouble, ere they drive us from amidst these hedges. Have you seen the French?' nay fair sir i have but this moment arrived i was about to ride forth myself to coast their army and observe their countenance so come with me ere the night fall and we shall see what we can of their order and dispositions there was a truce betwixt the two forces for the day on account of the ill-advised and useless interposition of the cardinal of perigord hence when chandos and nigel had pushed their horses through the long hedge which fronted the position they found that many small parties of the knights of either army were riding up and down on the plain outside The greater number of these groups were French, since it was very necessary for them to know as much as possible of the English defences, and many of their scouts had ridden up to within a hundred yards of the hedge, where they were sternly ordered back by the pickets of archers on guard. Through these scattered knots of horsemen Chandos rode, and as many of them were old antagonists it was Ha John on the one side and Ha Roll, Ha Nicholas, Ha Guichard upon the other as they brushed past them. Only one cavalier greeted them amiss—a large, red-faced man, the Lord Clermont, who by some strange chance bore upon his surcoat a blue virgin standing amid golden sunbeams, which was the very device which Chandos had donned for the day. The fiery Frenchman dashed across their path, and drew his steed back onto its haunches. "'How long is it, my lord Chandos?' said he hotly, "'since you have taken it upon yourself to wear my arms.' Chandos smiled. "'It is surely you who have mine,' said he since this surcoat was worked for me by the good nuns of Windsor a long year ago. "'If it were not for the truce,' said Clermont, "'I would soon show you that you have no right to wear it. "'Look for it, then, in the battle to-morrow, "'and I also will look for yours,' Chandos answered. "'Then we can very honourably settle the matter.' But the Frenchman was choleric and hard to appease. "'You English can invent nothing,' said he, "'and you take for your own whatever you see handsome belonging to others.' So grumbling and fuming he rode upon his way while Chandos, laughing gaily, spurred onward across the plain. The immediate front of the English line was shrouded with scattered trees and bushes, which hid the enemy. But when they had cleared these, a fair view of the great French army lay before them. In the centre of the huge camp was a long and high pavilion of red silk, with the silver lilies of the King at one end of it, and the golden Oriflamme, the battle-flag of old France, at the other. Like the reeds of a pool, from side to side of the broad array, and dwindling away as far as their eyes could see, were the banners and pennons of high barons and famous knights. But above them all flew the ducal standards, which showed that the feudal master of all the warlike provinces of France was in the field before them. With a the kindling eye, Chandos looked across at the proud ensigns of Normandy, of Burgundy, of Auvergne, of Champagne, of Vemondois, and of Berry flaunting and gleaming in the rays of the sinking sun. Riding slowly down the line, he marked with attentive gaze the camp of the crossbowmen, the muster of the German mercenaries, the numbers of the foot soldiers, the arms of every proud vassal of Vavasseur which might give some guide as to the power of each division. From wing to wing and round the flanks he went, keeping ever within crossbow shot of the army, and then, at last having noted all things in his mind, he turned his horse's head and rode slowly back heavy with thought to the English lines end of chapter 24